This season of Cancelled Movie Report is brought to you by the amazing people that support us over on our newly launched Patreon. But you know what? More about that later on. Hello and welcome to Cancelled Movie Report, the documentary podcast series that talks about the best movies that Hollywood never made. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Cambo. And joining me, as always, is scaredy little boy actor and comedian, Mr. Eaton Porter. I brought my teddy bear tonight <laughs> and my nightlight. I'm ready for it. Thank you for having me, Gambo. Uh, well, we're finishing off. This is part two of our report <laughs> on Guillermo del Toro's Cancelled at the Mountains of Madness. And if you need a little refresher before we get into it, here's a quick recap. The creature was heavily decomposed when fossilization began. Sir, I, I've never seen anything like it. If... We can dig up further evidence to sustain its problems. We'll make history, Bill. At 36,000 feet, they put Everest out of the running. But at the very top, through the clouds, we can make out bizarre structures. What could have lived in such a cold, dead place? So the species may be unique to Antarctica, self-contained environment. Our fossil was decapitated. Predators. I believe their combat would Larson finds her on the Huskies, but something is wrong. It's transforming, and it grabs hold of Gunnison next to Larson. Larson raises the shotgun and shoots Gunnison straight in the face, but Gunnison keeps coming. Larson then turns the gun downward, shooting straight into the ice floor. Larson swims away into the darkness. Professor Dyer, his wife and baby, died in childbirth, saying nothing to him. When were you planning on telling me? Anne is dead! And the baby! He knew! He's known for weeks! Where are you leading these men now? Knowledge! Well, you can go without me. We see a figure now in the snow below them. It's Gunnison, as he slowly makes his way back to the island. Now, let's get back into the film. Okay, so we left this oh with a bit of a cliffhanger. Big time. They've obviously gone up to the mountains. Gunnison's walking back. Uh, I think we should address the fact that this is definitely the spookiest report we've ever done. Yes, massive. <laughs> and I could, I'm just going to say this right now. Do not be listening to this at night. <laughs> okay? Well, I want all the lights but on. also don't be listening to this in complete white. White. <laughs> yes. Find a mid-ground. If you're, if you, if you, look, if you're one of our listeners and you're in an Antarctic station for six months and you've downloaded a whole bunch of uh, listen podcasts. To, listen to James Cameron's Spider-Man. Yeah. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just maybe not this one. <laughs> um, but I, I do love these kind of projects which aren't, based on a hugely known IP like Spider-Man or Batman we've covered or Predators we've covered in this very season. This is kind of a unique thing. And people may have read the novella, but I think that a lot of people will be coming to this completely fresh. fresh, So hopefully they're discovering this film as you do. Yeah, it's great. And hopefully, you know, if uh, if it is too scary for you, you just let us know and we'll we'll release a toned down version. (laughs) We'll, we'll, We'll mark this one with a little E for explicit. Yeah, and then we'll mark, we'll do a PG version where we've uh, redubbed some things. Yeah, and and maybe put a little symbol of a little um, thing like <laughs> dog human thing popping out. Yeah, just just a warning. But let's get back into the film because we left on a, on a bit of a cliffhanger there. But we actually start now with the two planes heading up towards the city at the top of the mountains, and it's a very rattly journey. And the men they're all looking a bit nervous, except for Lake. He's just keen to get up there and find out. They fly overhead up towards the mountains and the Arkham it looks like a small toy from way up there but they also managed to spot the same fault line that Larson did last episode they spot it in the in the obviously from the sky they can see the big fault line 
Suddenly the plane devices start acting up. The needles point north and south and then back again. It starts spinning around. They dip in and out of clouds. One of the planes hits a small crop of rocks that was hidden in the fog and cloud, splitting the fuel line. It's as if the peaks of the mountains were miles away, and then all of a sudden they're flying amongst them. Jutting around and losing fuel rapidly, they break above the cloud line. Suddenly they see it, a city in the sky. And this is how it describes it in the script. A broad valley covered in eons of ice, blistering with towers, spires, and rooftops. The scientists stare in awe at the alien architecture. The buildings vary in size, evidencing innumerable honeycombed compartments, wide ramps, and hanging terraces. That's how they describe the city. Oh, man. It's cr- I like, I like a blistering yeah. as a descriptor for a city. <laughs> it's like last episode we had the, uh, what was it, the, dro- the drooping jaw? <laughs> <laughs> And now we've got uh, some blistering. Right, it's also it's, it's but, so spooky. Yeah, so there's like honeycomb compartments, but there's big spires and towers, different sizes. There's balconies. There's all kinds. Yeah, and uh, as gardens. Del Toro uh, mentioned last episode, a green hue to it. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Emerald City, if you will. A bit like the Emerald City. Another thing that bloody stole from it. <laughs> so the planes start a rocky descent over a large slab of ice between two of the largest towers. And their landing is chaotic and rough and they're crashing along the ice, and the damaged plane is about to explode. They all start, one of them, the other one lands okay, but not great. One of them's about to explode, and the crew start getting out, and they all manage to get out, except for the pilot, who dies in a huge explosion. I was at, you said big two towers, you got two planes driving, mate, there's a lot of similarities here, there's a lot of weird things going on. So we cut back now to the Arkham, and Dyer, he's depressed over the news of his wife and his son's death. But he has no time to grieve, however, because Fowler comes running in. He needs help with the alien bodies that they found. He thinks that the green liquid that came out of them, remember last week yeah, when they yep, opened them? Yep. He thinks that could have been an embalming fluid of some kind. But it's starting to disappear. We now cut to the ship's infirmary, and Gunnison wakes up. So it seems Captain Douglas is standing over him, and he found him several miles away in the snow. And we also see around the infirmary, there's other crew members in various states of health. Various states of health. (laughs) Captain Douglas explains that they found him a few miles away and he was starting to show early signs of hypothermia, so they've dragged him into the infirmary. But Captain Douglas still wonders where Larson could be. And as he leaves, as the captain leaves, we see Gunnison's face start to morph. Yeah, he's going undercover. Back to the city in the sky. Atwood is saying a prayer for the fallen pilot mm. as the professor bury him. Obviously, you know, it's, yeah. it's his thing. It's that's his, his thing. That's his thing. thing. Yeah, it's his thing. Everyone's In lieu of a theory. character, that's his thing. That's his thing. <laughs> Some people morph. Some people have <laughs> prayer. So he's saying a prayer for the fallen pilot as all the other professors bury him. Except for Lake is not there. He's off in the distance now. He's studying the ancient walls and engravings intensely. He's a man obsessed. There's a, there's a trope yeah, of a yeah, Lovecraft yeah, for yeah, you. yeah. And as he does this, Danforth approaches him. The Danforth. Sir? Take a look. They organized their narrative in cartouches defined by these diagonal lines. See? You should go down, sir. As a measure of respect. Once you read them right to left and upwards, it's clear enough. 
One of our party died, sir. Thank you, Danforth. Yes, I noticed. Contrary to what you may think, what anyone may think, I did. I'll do my mourning back in Boston. We worry because our wristwatches have stopped, but these beings, they stepped across time, crossed over from other worlds. They were scientists like us, only more so. Their minds were creative and hungry. They landed here and built all this. Or more accurately, they they had it built for them. Look, look, a second race, a, a slave race, beasts of burden. It's, uh, it's Shogoths. If we are to believe this, the mutable creatures bred to perform any task. If they needed extra arms, eyes, fingers, mouths, they grew them. They were capable of mimicking any form of life down to the smallest detail. Now, here, you can see the writing, the craftsmanship changing here, right here on this wall. These beasts rebelled against their masters. A war ensued, and these are now their pictograms, their story. A war? These Shoggoths worshipped an ancient deity, a creature so malevolent that even the old ones were afraid. They reached the top of the rampart. Blake points down to a plaza below. At the center of the plaza, carved out of a natural pillar, a hundred feet high, a statue of a primordial creature, a wild creature full of tentacles, claws, and wings. And the outcome of that war? In time, we'll know. Okay, a couple of things to address here. <gasps> One, Lake has gone... He's gone mountains of madness, hasn't he? Big time mountains <laughs> of madness. He's gone full mountains of madness. Uh, but we also learned there's some important information. The old ones had a slave race yeah. called the Shogoths yeah. that can transform into anything for obviously slave purposes this is- in this case, but they rebelled. Yeah, and rose up. And rose up. So there's been an ancient war between the old ones and the Shogoths. And the Shogoths... There's something else that they There's worship. There's something else, mate. Something I'm else. Something some... else unseen at the moment. Yeah. You, oh, you can never see it. Never you can see never it. see it. Ooh, you'll go crazy. Yeah, you'll, you'll go, go mad. You'll, you'll go mountains of madness. <laughs> I mean, just mountains of madness. It's mum. <laughs> you'll, you'll go, go full mum. You'll go full mum. <laughs> so we cut back now to the infirmary. And Gunnison is awake now. And his hand starts to spat tentacles as he hovers over the bed of the other crewmen. So is he a shogun? Is yes. this what we're thinking? Yes, yeah, because he, he can, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he begins absorbing other other sailors. Yes, so yes, he, he, he is, and the creatures that were out in the fog, Shogoths. Yeah, Shogoths, yeah. Uh, so, and obviously in, in the giant green things. Yeah, we're thinking ones. they're the old ones. Yeah. The old ones. We now see the base camp 
uh, Captain Douglas and McTeague have made contact with the team in the Sky City. Yeah. The second plane pilot, he talks over the plane's radio back to them. The pilot explains that they have too many men to carry down in their one plane that they have left. And even though they're only in the air for 30 minutes, most of their fuel is gone. The ground team explains that they've been gone for 10 hours. <gasps> Captain Douglas tells them to dump all of the cargo, split into two groups, and fly one back. It's luck of the draw. That's, that's what they need to do in the meantime. As they're planning, suddenly, the creature formerly known as Gunnison bursts <laughs> it, it in. It doesn't say that in the script, no, does it? Oh, that's good. <laughs> it, 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 it always refers to it as Gunnison slash, uh, yeah. I think it's Shogoth or Creature or something. Creature, yeah. Uh, it, but he, Gunnison bursts in, but he's now grown and absorbed many more men, and he leaps straight for the captain. We cut to Dyer and Fowler. They're running further experiments on the monoliths and the old one. They notice something strange. Dyer sees a man from the sick bay. He's slowly limping down the hallway towards the lab. Dyer turns to tell Fowler, and once he turns back, no one's there. They continue their experiment, but before long, the alien's body comes alive, and the old one grabs Fowler, and he begins to instead cut him open. So he's doing oh, like a, what? So he's doing like a cutting him down the stomach. Uh, they soon turn to the, they throw him away, and there's there's a couple of old ones now rising out of their tombs because you remember the embalming fluid so was, was all leaking out. Yeah, they start to turn their attention to Die. Die screams and he runs outside, and he runs into as it's explained here in the script. A snowstorm in hell. <laughs> Literally, hell has frozen over. Yeah, Pretty good. much. On the ice field, men are screaming and shooting, and it's pandemonium. Gunnison is absorbing more things. He's becoming huge, part man, part dog, part everything. Suddenly, an old one rounds the corner, and it spots the Gunnison creature. These are two old enemies coming face to face. They start attacking one another as Dyer runs away. As he's running, he bumps into someone. It's Larson. We hadn't seen him since he disappeared into the ice. He's alive, and he appears to be stuffing burlap sacks into a backpack. Dyer quickly, he helps him out, and Larson and Dyer, they escape via a dog sled. All the while, Larson is taking creatures and infected fellow crew out with multiple shotguns. (laughs) Multiple shotguns? Oh, Oh, wow. He's rocking the double shots. As they leave, the Arkham is in complete chaos, and they are heading now towards the mountains. We cut back to the city. This, this is full. Do you, need a, getting, do you need a moment is, to absorb? Mate, so this is chaos is broken up. out. We're, it was a slow build in episode one. I feel like it was sort of all leading up. It's like, okay, there's a little bit here, a little bit here, yeah. and now it's just full-blown. Yep. The Shogoths and the old yeah. ones fighting, Shogoths absorbing, absorbing crew. It's crazy. So we're back in the city now, up on the mountains. And they're deciding on who goes back in the plane. They're drawing straws. Atwood, uh, Professor Daniels, and Danforth, they all get a good straw, as does one of the cameramen. They're all going to head back. Lake also draws a lucky straw. But he ultimately decides he's going to give it to the second cameraman so they can both go back. The two cameramen are brothers. So he's like, you and your brother, you both go, but you have my straw. What a guy. I'm going to stay up here. And of course, he pretends he's doing this out of the good of his heart, but we know he's there just to observe the city a bit more. Yeah, yeah. he's gone full mum. He's gone mum. <laughs> <laughs> Before they leave, uh, Lake grabs an old, the old leather book from Danforth, and he asks Danforth to tell Dyer that he is truly sorry. The plane sets off again, and once they leave, Lake gathers the remaining men and some climbing equipment, and they head into the city. 
The, this book that they've got, it feels very Necronomicon. I want to know where it came from because they obviously didn't know about any of this, this but there was a book, book full of information. Know that, yeah, yeah, very weird. Yeah, it seems very weird. Uh, so we cut back to Larson and Dyer. They're racing over the ice fields towards the mountains. Larson steers them straight into an ice cave. Dyer, now completely shell-shocked, he gets off the sled inside a massive cave. Where the hell are we? Somewhere safe. I found it by accident. Larson points to a hole blasted in the ice floor. We're about four miles from the ship. I've been gathering provisions all day. Where have you been? We should go back. Help them. We can't help them. We'll help ourselves. Those things back there. They've probably taken the whole crew by now. Not everyone. No, no, no. No, don't say Look, you saw enough. So shut up and meditate on it. Or make notes. Or whatever your professor brain wants to do. Me? I'm tired. Grab a fern and lie back. If we talk. We'll do it in the morning. Something rustles deep in the cave. Larson. Dio grabs a gun, moves towards the sound. Larson. He snaps on a torch, an albino penguin. Larson grabs him. Shut up! Shut up! Are you crazy? It's just a fucking penguin! The dumbest bird on the planet! Half a dozen albino penguins waddle out from the tunnel. They have no eyes. So? What's the difference? Caves, tunnels, they're pitch black. Caves? There's, there's more? Far as I can tell, the mountain's full of them. You okay? That thing, it... It, it, it scared you? A little bit. There. Now for the last time. Egghead, shut up and go to sleep. Yeah, that, that's how you get someone to go to sleep. <laughs> just, just blast a penguin's brain off. Okay, you're fine now? Let's go to sleep. I think Larson has a lot to learn about bedside matter. Big time. Big time. <laughs> you catch more when it flies with the honey than... Uh, what's the saying? I don't yeah, know. You, 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 honey you, than Shogoths. Yeah. <laughs> the penguins, though, mm-hmm. are they Shogoths as well? No, uh, they're just no, undead. Yeah, they're just albino these weird penguins un- with no eyes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're they're never, without spoiling too much, never truly, truly explained what they are, other than they're living an unnaturally long Some lives lives, yeah. for some reason. Uh, so yeah, uh, Larson. He seems to be the man that could possibly, uh, you know, is is there to fucking get out, take you know? names, yeah, 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 take kick names. ass, yeah. So Dyer, he continues the dream that he had last episode with the dark man, uh, remember him? Yeah. He's on the ice and he's walking towards him again and suddenly he wakes up. So this is this ongoing motif of the dark man. The next morning, Dyer helps Larson with the ammunition, which seems to be replacing some of the ammunition with salt. Larson explains that the creatures seem to react badly to salt water. Oh. And when he remember he's grabbing the burlap sacks, he's yeah. grabbing sacks of salt. salt. Larson, he shows Dyer around the cave a little, explaining the vast networks of passageways in there. From inside the cave, they hear a sputtering engine. The plane is returning. The plane, though, it can't land. 
it seems the rest of the people from the Arkham, they've now been completely taken over and they're all standing in the middle of the ice field like statues, similar to the penguins. And they're all staring at the plane as it comes down. They manage to land roughly on a spare section of ice that they man that people aren't quite on. But suddenly, they're set upon by everyone and all manner of creatures at the place too. Why would you land? Well, they don't know what's going on, do they? Oh, man. You the worst they had is that one guy died. Yeah, that, yeah, okay. And uh, one of them went full mum. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the pilot manages to get out of the plane, but he realises, oh, it's a crew. He realises what they've become. They're all tendrils coming out and claws and all kinds. Inside the plane, however, a few of the surviving professors like Atwood, Danforth and Daniels, they hear a noise. Suddenly, Gunnison opens the door. Oh, thank God, they think. But suddenly, in the cockpit window, another Gunnison. And another all around them. As the creatures enter, Daniels manages to swipe at one with a knife and it, it cuts him down the little, the little arm, but some goo falls onto it. The creatures are starting to morph as they enter the plane. Atwood, Danforth and Daniels manage to escape out of the emergency hatch at the back of the plane and they start running across the ice field. We also see Pip, one of the young cameramen, and he sees his brother is trapped inside the plane and he heads back in to help him. And as soon as Pip arrives, we realise it's too late. His brother spouts wild tentacles and grabs him. Pip is no longer with him. Mate, you never go back. Never you go never back. never go back. <laughs> Atwood, Danforth and Daniels are fleeing their full fucking tilt across the ice field as the creatures ravish the plane behind them. And as they do, suddenly they come across two familiar friends. They spot Dyer and Larson, each brandishing twin shotguns. Larson levels his weapon. No, no, please, don't, no! It's us. Don't be, don't be. Wait, wait. We know them. Don't be so sure. You stay right there. All of you, eat that. What the hell is this? Salt? Go on, chow down. You don't understand. The, the plane, these things, there are things- Shut up and eat some salt, or you'll get some from here. You're all too smart for me. Now, eat a good handful, and then we'll see who's who. Bastards. Are you satisfied now? Huh? Are you? You're inhuman. Inhuman? You're funny. You too, Dr. Davis. Daniel suddenly squeals and his whole torso explodes into a million tentacles wheeling around. Larson levels his gun and shoots him. But, but, but that thing, it only touched him for a second. Now, they'll come after us. Let's move. This is the thing. This is the thing. This is the blood test. This is, this the, is blood the salt test. test. This is it. I love these scenes. Any scene so. that's like this tense, everyone's going to do their little test or whatever. I love it. I'm such a... So, hey, there's, can I just ask? Now, this might be a really weird thing to ask. Mm -hmm. In that, there was a scream in that. Oh, tell me if you recognize it. I think that is the scream from the mummy. <laughs> That they had well on the done, plane. well done, bell. Eden. Yes. Eden, I'm so glad. Where's I, the bell, Gambo? Where's I, the bell? Oh, I packed the bell away. <laughs> so, oh, I'm so glad you I'm found so that. I'm so glad you put that in because I put that in as a bit of an Easter egg. Yes, 
like when we when we get our voice actors and stuff, as part of the file they send us at the end, pick behind the curtain, we get them to do grunts and screams yeah. and all kinds to layer in. But with Tom Cruise, I went, I know, I know there's exactly. an iconic scream <laughs> from the movie The Mummy when the trailer leaked. Didn't uh, have any of the rest of the audio, so it sounded hilarious. But I, I just, I just wanted to use it in this episode. So good, so, so good. Thank you for yes. finding that. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, good job. Uh, you might hear it coming up later as well. Okay, intense scene though. I love that scene. I think that's it. That's great. great. That's awesome. Yeah. You too, Doctor Daniels. Yeah. You just know yeah, something's yeah. going to get yeah, done. <laughs> so we're now back with Lake and the remaining professors in the Sky City. They head to a huge round stone chamber that is referred to as the biology room and mammoth sculptures of unknown gods lay toppled lake is astounded by the technology in this room far too advanced for what should be here we see massive structures of animal bones petrified together from dinosaurs to birds to mammals to crustaceans lake states that this is all life on earth in one structure and the old ones created them all. And they are gods. In amongst all the fossils, we even spot a human skeleton. Oh. So implying that all life came from these old ones in the middle of the Antarctic. This is very Prometheus. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> they enter another room with different types of machinery. Huge energy sources and more technology that is beyond their years. We see a pulsing form of energy. It's like a, like a big light. Yeah, warm, warm. Yeah. <laughs> One of the professors, a guy named Professor Ropes, he becomes fascinated with this glowing warm, warm. And he puts his hand up against it. Oh, big mistake. Mate, never touch it. Whoop! He ages in mere seconds. He gets the life force sucked out of him by the time distortion. And he falls to the ground a husk. And his clothes are old rags. See, it turns out this is where the time dilation has been coming from. There seems to be something in the middle of the mountain that is warping time all around it. Kevin, would you say he chose poorly? poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so Lake, he tries to work another machine that he, he sees there. And as he does, he receives a flash of information, a message being put into his brain. It's all about history of the old ones. We see the creation of life the prime of this city, the war of the Shogoths and the Old Ones, and in his vision, we see something rising out of the water. Something massive. Lake is overcome by his knowledge. He knows it all now, and it's not good. He tries desperately to warn the rest of the group, but he isn't making any sense. He explains the Shogoths, they want to bring about their god. Something worse than the Old Ones. Cthulhu. Who, by the way, Cthulhu doesn't appear in the book. Oh. They've added Cthulhu because it's quite a short book. It wouldn't make a whole movie into this. Oh, okay. So, so Cthulhu doesn't appear in, in The no. Mountain of Madness. Not in the book. Not in the no. book. Ah, oh, okay. So, but he's such a well-known... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, if you're doing okay. Lovecraft, you've yeah, got to do Cthulhu. Yeah. So yes, the, the Shogoths, the god that they worship is Cthulhu. Suddenly, a Shogoth kills one of the remaining professors, comes out of the dark. More of them appear out of nowhere, and they snatch up two more professors. Like, he runs and he hides in a nearby catacomb, thinking he's safe. There's a noise above him. He looks up. Oh no. A Shogoth leaps down. We cut away. Oh, god damn it. 
That's that's very like um, alien sort of esque, like yeah. pulling people yeah, into yeah. the yeah, 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 yeah. It's great, and I love the idea of like hiding in old. I am- imagine them like pyramid esque catacombs yeah, big and time. stuff like that. Oh, great. We cut to Dyer, Larson, Danforth, and Atwood. They're pretty much all that's left at this point. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Everyone else has been taken over. And they're looking down at the Arkham from a distant ice cliff. And the creatures are burning fuel. And the ship appears to be on fire from the outside. And it's melting the ice. The Arkham can finally be free and go home. But this means if these creatures get out of here, they can take over the whole world. Because they're essentially trapped there. They're surrounded 360 degrees by, the by salt, salt water. water so they can't but if they can get on a ship, game over. Yeah. It's what we call the A Quiet Place 2 conundrum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They decide they have to stop this. They plan to use some dynamite that Larson has spotted on the Miskatonic when he when he went past it before to fracture the huge ice sheet fault oh, line. Yeah. They go to the Miskatonic and they start looking around the abandoned ship. They manage to find some dynamite. However, when they pick some up, it crumbles in their hand. It's too old. It's the, the time, time dilation, dilation has again. got to it. However, they do find some that is still good. Around one third of the dynamite is still usable. They're removing the dynamite, and Atwood, he excuses himself. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> Let's he, split up and search for clues. <laughs> he wanders the ship until he comes across a small chapel on the, sh- on the ship. He's, that's his bread and butter. That's his bread and butter, yeah, yeah. He yeah, enters, and he picks up a small Bible. He looks up to see something in the reflection of the glass. He turns around to see a familiar face. Blake? How did you... <laughs> The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green Merciful. 
Take it off the list, Aiden. We got a villain monologue. Yeah, villain monologue. You wouldn't think we'd get one of this, but we got one. No, from the the hive mind. From the, the hive mind. Man, that was not Lake. That was that was fantastic. Creepy. Gone. Look, I think we all agree. He went full mum. He, he went, went full, full mum, mum, and he went. He, he became a bully. Yeah, as well. <laughs> I know. Kick your them when they're down. Gods, I know. We created life. Not your lo- Go on, finish Come your on, little yeah. prayer. <laughs> Nobody's listening. It's fine. Oh, oh man. Yeah. It's uh, intense. Atmospheric, though. Very much. And I can oh. imagine him doing that as he's walking. Yeah. Like, slowly, slowly down, the, down the yeah. aisle of the chapel. Yeah, yes, yeah, oh, yeah, 100%. Great. 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 On like an old creaky ship. Yeah. <sighs> so creepy. So we cut now to the rest of the group, and they're scouring the Miskatonic looking for Atwood. When suddenly he reappears. But something's a bit off. Yeah, well, hang, hang on. We, hang on, we, hang on I minute. think we as the audience, <laughs> we <laughs> yeah, understand what's happening. Larson and Atwood, uh, they're now roped together and they're down in the crack of the ice. Okay. So the Atwood, who obviously just got taken over, and Larson, uh, man of many shotguns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're roped together in the large crack of the ice and they're setting dynamite, the dynamite into sticks, them. Yeah. Di and Danforth, they're at the top. And Di hears a chanting sound. He takes a shotgun to investigate. The men from the Arkham, the creatures that they've become, they're now fused and transformed into one giant organism, and they are chanting to Cthulhu. Something is starting to happen, and the ground is beginning to shake. Time is running out. Dyer rushes back to tell the group to blow it now. Danforth tells him that Larson and Atwood are still down there. It doesn't matter, he says. There's no time. There's no time! Larson looks over to see that Atwood is cutting the wires of all the dynamite. He's, he's sabotaging their mission. Larson laughs. You, whatever the fuck you are, you're good. You got me. But you really don't know shit about explosives, do you? He levels his gun <laughs> and he turns it to the explosives and he fires. A blinding set of explosions trigger across the ice. The large sheet starts to crack as part of it floats and tears away, bowing and bobbing in the ocean. The creatures of the Arkham all suddenly stop working and they run towards the ice crack. Dyer and Danforth run towards the now abandoned Arkham and several creatures scream as they do. Large amounts of salt water are now flooding onto the ice sheets as they're sinking. They notice that the ship is starting to drift from the ice field. It's free. They start climbing up to the ship. You know, they've got the ropes tying it down. And as they do, they're followed by two creatures that used to be the Huskies. They make their way on board, and Dyer starts cutting the tethers with a fire axe. Two of the creatures fall into the ocean. Danforth and Dyer look... Oh, sorry. I should say, uh, Dyer cuts the, uh, the ropes with a fire axe, specifically. Oh, okay. Good to know. Danforth and Dyer looks back at the ice sheet they've just freed themselves from. As from, this is what it says in the script, up from behind the mountain ranges comes a heaving titan. Cthulhu! So Cthulhu comes Comes over the the mountain. mountain. Dyer and Danforth notice that some of the Shogoths have managed to make it onto the ship. They rush inside and down the corridors as creatures snap and claw at them. They find a storage room that's been flooded with seawater. They jump in. It's waist deep now. Suddenly, Cthulhu swoops down and grabs the ship. It picks it up into the air and starts squeezing it. As it squeezes, many of the Shogoths get crushed into the walls of the ship. The giant beast throws the ship through the air, 
Danforth and Dyer thrown around wildly as it lands back in the ocean, miles from where they just were. <laughs> Seawater floods the entire ship and manages to get into every room. Dyer pushes the storage room door shut and he locks it. So Cthulhu did them a solid, really. It really just went, really get out of here. Come on, you guys. <laughs> So uh, we're back now where, where everything kind of started yeah. in the storage room. Danforth, he looks out of a small porthole and he sees the giant silhouette of Cthulhu against the sky. But Danforth has changed. He's seen something. He's shaken by something. Dyer wonders what he could have seen. Suddenly, we see shapes start to emerge in the corner of the room and out of the shadow comes Lake. He says that Danforth... He has now seen the future out there. He has seen the end of things. He has seen the Dark Man. And he knows that Dyer has seen it too. So, um, you know how there were Shogoths getting into the ship? Yep. Lake has obviously managed to somehow get into the storage bit. Not affected by the water somehow. Yeah, that's weird. It never really explains exactly how. I'm imagining he's kind of like up in the corner almost. Yeah. Because, you know, it's a weird transmorphing creature. Isn't that Danforth reaches for his shotgun as a tentacle shoots from Lake to stop him, grabbing his arm. <laughs> Dyer swings the axe and chops the tentacle from Lake's body, freeing his friend. And Danforth raises the gun and he shoots Lake. Lake falls into the water. But it's too late. See, Lake's Shogoth tissues are wrapping oh, around Danforth's oh arm and starting to bubble. He looks oh, teary-eyed at his oldest oh friend God. and he begs Dyer to shoot him. Dyer! Shoot me! Now. He can't let these creatures escape. Dyer grabs the gun as Danforth drops to his knees. Do it, Bill. I can feel it taking over. Please, let me choose. Oh, I die. Do it. Interior-eyed, Dyer fires. He sits there in silence for a few minutes. And suddenly, voices. Yeah. Out in the corridor. The door bursts open, and we see the crewmen who first discovered Dyer in 1939. Wow. So this whole thing is a circle. And it's quite up to date. Like, it's just happened. When they find him, the crazed man, this has all just happened to him. And what seems like a couple days was 10 years in real time. Wow. So, yes, he's now, we're back to the very start of the film where he's been discovered by the crewmen. We now return to Dyer, who is in a hospital prison cell, and he is finishing his story to Captain Starkweather. I hoped to die. I really did. But I know now why I've been spared to deliver this warning. In my mind, to me, this happened yesterday. Just yesterday. Do you understand? I understand perfectly, Mr. Dyer. Orderlies. You killed the men aboard the Arkham. You shot Danforth in cold blood. You, sir, sabotaged the expedition. Why or how? That does not concern me. No, I must go. I sail at midnight. Starkweather exits through the door. No! No! You're wrong! He walks down the corridor as the orderlies shut the door on Dyer, who screams through his barred window. You can't go! 
It's still there, waiting for us. Starkweather exits the hospital as his warrant officer hurries up the path behind him. Good evening, sir. Let's get going, Wilson. I've wasted more than enough time here. Oh, mate, it's all for nothing, Dyer. The judicial system just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. No. Oh, man. It's the classic scene, though, isn't it? It's like, you need to believe me! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and they I, walk away. Again, I'm such a sucker for it every oh, time. Man. It's so... Ugh. So we're, we're now wrapping up the film here. Okay. We cut now to Starkweather aboard the HMS Moonstone that we, we introduced you yeah. in the last episode. As it sails through an Arctic fog, a communication comes through from Hobart. It informs him that... Ah, a message from Hobart, sir. It seems that Mr. William Dyer... He, uh, he died in his cell last night. Hanged himself, sir. On the Arctic landscape now, Starkweather and a few men come across a tattered old tent and a few upturned sleds. Starkweather enters the tent. Nothing in here but snow and blood and some stained autopsy tables. He exits the tent, but all these men have now vanished. <laughs> that was quick. He is alone, except for a single figure walking towards him in the distance. The camera pulls out as we see the two figures alone in the whiteness, dwarfed by the mountains of madness, and text appears on screen. At the end of days will come a man that walks like a man, looks like a man, but is not a man. Revelations 519. And we fade to black. Oh, God. (laughs) It's a bleak ending, isn't it? It is very bleak. It is absolutely bleak. Wow. How's it... (sighs) Oh How's God, it? At, you can breathe now. Oh my God. You can breathe. The spookiness oh. is done. There's no more spookiness it's coming up. It's lifted. It's, get, it's getting warmer in here again. The, the thing I will say is you can totally picture this as a movie. Oh, 100%. Uh, because mainly it's become other movies, which we will get into in just a second here. But obviously with this podcast, we want to talk about what happened. Yeah, could you please tell me what happened, Cambo? Because this is this seems like a home run. This seems like a great... Would you like me to tell you or would you like Guillermo del Toro to tell you? Yeah, let's get Guillermo. Well, we've again pulled from the Collider interview that we pulled from last episode and he explains exactly what happened with this. But a lot of people think of directors like, uh, like this Caesars and sitting on a chess lounge with somebody feeding them grapes and, and you say... I would like to do Mountains of Madness now. And, and it's not. It's you, you're, you're, a, you're a blue-collar guy working your way out of, you know, putting numbers uh, in front of studios, putting stars, packages, whatever, and you have your, your stuff to, to move. And then that's why I tried to do a small movie and a big movie. Because the small movies, you suffer with the budget, but you have complete freedom. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want. And that keeps you alive. So is there any particular thing that'd be holding that back? Is it, is it budget? Because it is well, a big scale production. I mean, uh, we thought we had a very good uh, safe package. We said 150, Tom Cruise, Jim Cameron producing, ILM doing the effects, here's the art, this is the concept. Because I really think uh, big scale horror would be great. But there was a difference of, of opinion. The studio didn't think so. Well, but the, maybe big uh, scale. Uh, the R was what made it. Well, big scale R-rated superhero stuff. I mean, we have yeah. Deadpool and Logan that are crushing it right now. Maybe no, that'll no, kind of pave the way. You know, the the thing uh, that if if Mountains had been PG-13, or I had said PG-13, I'm 
I'm too much of a Boy Scout, you know. I should have lied like most of my colleagues do, <laughs> but uh, but I didn't. And uh, you know, the, but the R-rated, we all think from outside. We think, oh, the studio's gonna learn this or that. But studios don't think that way. I mean, I, I remember um, a joke somebody said to me about a, a drunken guy that goes to a revival tent, and they pour uh, alcohol and they put a worm. And you see the flesh of the worm dissolve on the alcohol. And they say, what did you learn? And the drunken guy says that if I drink, I won't have worms. That's sort of the way the studio mentality works. <laughs> <laughs> Is he going a little mum? <laughs> He's going a little mum. But that's a, that's a very um, fuck you attitude, isn't it? To be like, they don't fucking learn shit. Doesn't matter how many successful R-rated movies, they're not going to learn a thing. That's crazy. So it literally, it sounds like it was just the the studio's like, yeah, R-rated films is not going to make enough money. There's not enough uh, wide appeal for 150 million. Two main reasons were created. Studio wanted PG-13. Yeah, and he didn't think you could realistically do it with. I mean, you heard some of the grotesque body horror going on. You're fusing dogs and humans Humans, and all kinds. Uh, And they said that the budget was too big for a movie of this type for for a horror movie. However. Something that you hit on just previously was the movie Prometheus. Yes, it feels. Which was just a bit too similar. And in fact, uh, as he was developing it, Guillermo del Toro released a statement on his website. And this is what the statement says. Prometheus started filming a while ago, right at the time we were in pre-production on Pacific Rim. And the title itself gave me pause, knowing that Alien was heavily influenced by Lovecraft and his novella. This time, decades later, with the budget and the place that Ridley Scott occupied, I assume the Greek metaphor alluded to the creation aspect of the H.P. Lovecraft book. I believe I am right, and if so, as a fan, I am delighted to see where the new Ridley Scott science fiction film goes, but this will probably mark a long pause, if not the complete demise, of At the Mountains of Madness. The sad part is, I've been pursuing At the Mountains of Madness for over a decade now, and well, after Hellboy 2, two projects I dearly loved were not brought to fruition for me. The good part is one project did, and I'm loving it, and I'm grateful for the blessings I've received. Onwards. So essentially he said, Prometheus is now filming, yeah, and it's so close to what we're doing. They've got the architects in Prometheus that created all life on Uh, Earth. Engineers. Sorry, the engineers. The engineers. I'm sorry. How could I forget? (laughs) Um, They created all life on Earth, and there's a lot of very similar themes in Prometheus. They Guy Pierce, Go Crazy, and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Creationist myth. Yeah. Uh, Some of the body horror elements. Yeah. uh, It's too similar. And he said, they're already doing it. We we can't really do ours. So I did want to, again, touch on films that have directly been inspired by At the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, I feel like there's so many. There's two, there's two prominent ones. Uh, we've mentioned it many times, The, the thing. thing. yeah. And you might say, hey, The Thing is based on a book. I understand that. But the book is inspired by At by the Mountains of Madness. 100%. And it, like, it's so evident. Oh, this, when you just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Everything in the there. The setting, yeah. the body horror, the morphing... Yeah, the, the salt scene. The, is, is yeah, the the who's, yeah, the fact that they look human, but yeah. they're not. Yeah, yeah. The other one, weirdly, is uh, again the Alien franchise has taken. Uh, this is the plot of Alien vs Predator. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly. <laughs> they're well, in the Arctic. Yeah. There's a war between two races that these people are trapped between. Yeah, it is the, essentially the plot of Alien vs. Whoever Predator. wins, Cambo, we, we lose. lose. <laughs> such a good tagline for such a bad film. <laughs> Terrible film. Okay, so this is a slightly different one because 
is there a future for At the Mountains of Madness? Please, Because he said future. it may just be a long pause. And Del Toro, he's actually sworn to make this project before he dies. Oh, really? Yep. So there is a there is a seed of hope. There's a seed of hope. He he actually wears a ring on his finger of the Miskatonic University. And he swears that he will wear that ring until he makes <laughs> At the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> oh, my God. Another interesting... <laughs> Thing has come up, which is Guillermo del Toro signed a contract to produce original content for Netflix. And it's been rumored for a little while that this could potentially make its way as a Netflix series. Yeah. He did appear on the Kingcast podcast, which is a podcast about Stephen King. And he was actually asked about this. With the ongoing uh, relationship you have with Netflix, do you think yeah. there's any chance that we that you might loop back around to at the Mountains of Madness at some point? Well, listen, uh, I, that was <laughs> Take a Wild Guess, which were the first projects I presented, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I went through the cupboards and found Monte Cristo and Mantis on Madness. Those were a couple of the ones I presented first. The thing with Mountains is the screenplay I uh, co-wrote 15 years ago mm-hmm. is not the screenplay I would do now. So mm. I need to do a rewrite, uh, not only to scale it down somehow, but because back then I was trying to bridge the scale of it with uh, elements that made it somewhat uh, be able to go through the, the studio machinery, you know? Yeah, blockbustery. Blockbuster. Right. And, and I think I don't need to reconcile that anymore. Mm-hmm. I would I, agree. I can go to a a, a, a far more esoteric, weirder, smaller version of it, you know, where I where I can go back to, to some scenes that were left out, some of the big set pieces I, I designed, I, for example, I have no appetite for. Uh, like, I, I, I've, I've already done this or that giant set piece. I, I feel like going into a, a weirder direction. Uh, I, I know a, a few things will stay, I know the 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 ending we had is mm. one of the most uh, intriguing, weird, unsettling endings <laughs> for me. So you know, the, uh, there's about four horror set pieces that I love in the original script. So you know, it would be my hope. I, I mean, I certainly get a phone call every six months uh, by Don Murphy <laughs> calling me: <laughs> "Are we doing this or what? Are you doing this next or what?" And and I always, uh, you know, I say I have to take the time to rewrite it, but it is my hope. Look, I, I you know, the story. I wear the ring uh, of the Miskatonic University until I make the movie, mm-hmm. and I'll wear it until 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 that happens. You I, think I, you'd I, invite Cruz back for the new version? You know, I think the age the age has changed now. Uh, Tom mm-hmm. Tom is about fifteen years older. Yeah. Than, I think the age uh, of Lake, you know, it it would be it would be a different a different cast, and I would I would go if I can I would go for uh, mostly unknowns. 
Okay, so there you go. He's okay. still keen as a bean to fucking make it. Matt, he is 100% on board to make it. For a second there, I thought he was going to say uh, Chris Pratt. <laughs> it cost him everything. But dude, everything. Um, yeah. It sounds like he's, he. this is still a possibility. I love that sense. he wears the ring. Oh, dude, he wears the ring. He wears the he ring. He literally wears it. Every Man, th- that's just incredible. He said, I love listening to him in interviews. He, he, yeah, he, I love he, it. He loves he, to chat. He's such a wholesome little fellow, yeah, really? isn't he? <laughs> really? Is. I love uh, in the one previous where he's talking about being a director on the Shays Lounge. I want to make a mountain of the badness. Okay, the ultimate question we need to answer on this podcast. Oh, would this movie have been any good? I, I'm going to step back from the mic for a little bit for this. Yes! <laughs> it would have yeah. been great. It would have been it so been good. Great. It's, it ticks so many boxes. It's funny. It's got the $150 million budget, and I guess I can see it in the design of the cities and stuff, but I actually don't think it sounds exorbitantly expensive. Well, the thing uh, is, just what, the creature but if you're, stuff. I, I just wonder whether they want to film a lot in some sort of snowy area, and that would jack up the price. Maybe, and Tom Cruise would jack. Tom up Cruise the price would jack as well. up the price. What's he getting? Twenty million. And how much? And how much does uh, Cthulhu charge as well? Yeah, well like yeah. he'd be right up there yeah. as well, man. Or uh, maybe he's cheap because he's in so much. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they stick him with everything. <laughs> maybe he's just a day player. I just cut. Yeah, it just disappoints me so much that they got so close I to know. that point. And he and loves it so plays. much. Yeah. It's his love for the project that really that upsets me the most because yeah. he clearly so desperately wants to make this. It's the it's the thing he wants to make most in the world, and he's just yeah. never quite been able to do it. But it, it, it's a it's a solid enough script. Um, even even so, I could see it as a series, as a yeah. as like a six part series or something like that. Shorter, I think. Like yeah, yeah six. You know, like you, Netflix love their thirteen episodes. Yeah, yeah. Way shorter, shorter than, than that. that. Way yeah. shorter than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I think it would have been great. I think it would have been great as well. I think it would have. I think it's really disappointing that they didn't get it across the line. Well, uh, Thomas Maypoth of the fourth, he did all right, though. Yeah, yeah, he bounced back. He bounced back. Well, we have come to the end of our cancelled movie report on the famed Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the film, and we would love it if you would subscribe, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you like to listen. That really honestly does help us get discovered in the charts by doing that. And it would also be terrific if you love the show, if you could leave us a five-star rating. Or most importantly of all, Tell a friend. If you've got a friend that's always wondered about this film, send them this episode. Or send them one before. Send them at part one. <laughs> we are completely independent here at Cancelled Movie Report, so your support means the world to us. Hey, what did you think of the movie? And did we miss anything? We would love to hear from you. You can always get in touch with us via cancelledmovies at gmail.com or at cancelledmovies on all of the socials. We would also love to thank our amazing voice cast, headed by Evan Ferrante as William Dyer, as Tom Cruise in this movie, but the whole cast you'll find listed in the episode notes below. And maybe there's a cancelled movie project you've always wanted to hear about. Why not let us know? You can fill out a form in the episode description alerting us to a project, and we may just give it the cancelled movie report treatment like we did for Jacka Gray with this episode. I'm Michael Campbell. I've hosted and edited this episode, and Eden Porter was my co-host too. Thank you very much, Campbell. And we both produced the show. But keep listening next week because we have a very exciting, much requested script that we're going to cover. It's J.J. Abrams penned Superman Flyby. Joel. Lara, you need to stay my cub. He is our son and I will not send him away. You sent the boy out of planet, but I will find him, my brother. What does it feel like to fly? Here. I'll show you. Show me what? Fly? There is a visitor. 
hiding somewhere on Earth. Right now. There's a man who wants you dead. Dr. Luther will be happy to read that I'm not the monster that he's predicting. But until then, take care.